My wife did tell me on the way to church today, it's about time for a haircut. <laughs> so, all right. We reached Judges 13 when we're introduced to this colorful hero of the faith who's actually mentioned in Hebrews 11, uh, named Samson. We read in Judges 13, 1, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. That's the way Samson's story begins. It's a dark time. As we read the book of Judges, we become familiar with this recurring theme. It's not just a cycle of, of evil and then oppression from an enemy and then deliverance from the Lord. It actually is a cycle that is a downward spiral. It becomes worse and worse. In fact, the very last verse of the book of Judges observes, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It seems like it even describes our own times, doesn't it? Where everybody's just doing what they think they ought to do. And that, that statement shows up multiple times in the book of Judges. We saw last week that, that even a good warrior like Jephthah had a limited understanding of God's will as revealed in the Scriptures. Had there been a king or a prophet in the land, Jephthah's rash vow to sacrifice the first person that came out after his victory, that, that rash vow could have been nullified by somebody who had the authority. Or if he had known God's provision in Leviticus for human beings to be redeemed from human sacrifice, he himself could have paid the redemption price instead of sacrificing his only daughter. Jephthah did what was right in his own eyes. And even as a man of integrity, his partial ignorance of the Scripture led to horrific tragedy that still makes us squirm when we hear his story. By the time we reach Samson, the Israelites aren't repenting and crying out to the Lord for help like we saw earlier in the book. In fact, they're just trying to get used to and, and move along, accommodate with living under their Philistine oppressors and, and not rock the boat. In fact, they're so worried about doing that, they're even willing to turn Samson over to their enemies to avoid trouble. Even Samson is driven more by his appetites than any biblical principle. And nonetheless, we see God use even Samson's weaknesses and failures as occasions to begin breaking the power of Philistine bondage. It's an example of God taking the lead, His unilateral willingness to save, and His ability to use deeply flawed human instruments. And just like we saw when we looked at Hebrews 11, even though we have these people of the promise, these people that have put faith in God, it it's where their faith is placed that makes the story work. They're not the heroes of the faith. God is the hero. And we increasingly see that in the book of Judges. Look, the more disappointed we are with the leaders that we see, the more difficult the problems that we see, the more the downward cycle, the more we hunger 
for God to step in as the hero. And that's exactly what the book of Judges does for us. And it's what we see in the life of Samson. God is the hero from beginning to end. First in Judges 13, we're going to see his impossible birth. His mom couldn't have kids. But, but the angel of the Lord came and told her that she would have a son and that he would be consecrated to God his whole life long, an impossible birth. And then as we begin to learn about his story in Judges 14 and 15, we see supernatural power. The Spirit of the Lord will rush on him, and he'll do things that help him, in the words of the angel's prophecy, begin to save Israel from the Philistines. We see in those same chapters in Judges 14 through 16, his reckless appetite. It's like he can't get himself under the control, under control. And I, I've been thinking about this. I almost wonder whether God made him a Nazarite, which means as a Nazarite, you're holding back from certain things. You have to live a disciplined life because Samson was so naturally undisciplined. And, and he tended to just go after whatever he desired and to indulge in it. And, and ironically, God used even these weaknesses and this, this uh, tendency to indulge in things that even in sins that Samson never should have in, indulged in. And God also humbled Samson because there were really dire consequences for these choices that Samson made. And then we reach the end of the story. We see a final vindication. We see the greatest victory of Samson's life at his death. God is the hero through this whole thing. God makes it possible. And what we want to take away from this, this, this hero that's a little bit crazy, we want to take away that God is the ultimate hero and God is still at work today. So first consider with me his impossible birth, which led to his being consecrated to God. In Judges 13, we read in verses 2 to 4, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren. I mean, she couldn't have any kids and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren. I mean, he just cuts right to the chase something that's painful for her, that's obvious, that's maybe her biggest problem, and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Of course, she goes and tells her husband, and they meet up with the angel of the Lord again, which turns out to be Yahweh himself, and it's just a fascinating story for which we don't have time tonight. But then the prophecy comes true in verses 24 to 25, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him, and Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. So the first mention, think about it, the first mention of the gospel in the Old Testament declares that the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The serpent has won this terrible victory 
over Adam and Eve and, and has separated them from God. And God predicts that the offspring of the woman will actually crush the serpent's head. And that's really where the story of redemption begins. It's striking how often key women in the history of salvation are unable to bear children. You start with Sarah. I mean, God's promise to Abram that he'll one day be Abraham, the father of a multitude, and that God is going to actually bless the entire world through his offspring. But he lives to be 100 years old before he has his first kid, and it looks totally impossible, and yet God gives the child Isaac to Sarah. And then Isaac's wife, Rebekah, is also unable to have children until Isaac prays for her. And then Rachel, uh, wife of Jacob, can't have children, and then God gives her children. And here, Manoah's wife. And then we're going to be introduced to Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who wasn't able to have children. It was a very difficult situation in her family. And we cross over into the New Testament, and there's Elizabeth, who ends up being the mother of John the Baptist, who in her old age gave birth, an impossible birth that God promised her through the angel. And if you think about it, this, this story of redemption, it really does center around supernatural births because it culminates in the birth of Jesus Christ to a virgin named Mary. Who would have known when God spoke those words to Adam and Eve right at the beginning, when he said, offspring of a woman, how very specific that would be and how impossible it would seem. The gospel of the Messiah Jesus is rooted in impossible promises. God brings life where there is no life, an impossible birth. And then we start learning about Samson, and we see supernatural power. And he begins to save Israel from the Philistines. In Judges 14, 5 and 6, we read, Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And this, this statement shows up over and over again in Samson's life. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. In Judges 14, 19, we're told once again, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. He went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. After he killed the lion, he made up a riddle. He told the riddle to, uh, at, a, at a banquet, and they bribed his wife to tell them uh, what the answer to the riddle was, and so he ended up having to come up with these garments. Well, God used that for him to kill these Philistines and bring the garments, but the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him to be able to do it. In Judges 15, 3 through 8, um, the story keeps getting worse and more complicated, um, his father-in-law gives his wife to somebody else, and we're going get, to get to that later. Um, but that makes him really angry, so he ends up tying torches 
to the tails of 300 foxes, ties their tails together. They run through the standing grain of the Philistines and destroy their crops. Well, that makes them hopping mad, and they, they want to have vengeance. They said, who did this? They said it was Samson. And so they burned the house down around his wife, who had been given to another, and her father. And so now Samson's really angry. And Samson said, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. Then he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom. Well, after he had done that, he has now become the number one enemy of the whole Philistine nation, and they want to get rid of him. And Judges 15, 14 to 15, his own people have really turned against him. They don't want to be in trouble with the Philistines. They have bound him with ropes. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. So we're not talking about a donkey skeleton. We're talking about a donkey corpse. We're talking about a donkey-like that stinks. He's died, and he rips out the jawbone. I can't imagine how nasty that was, but he pulls it out of his hand. He, he took it, put out his hand and took it, and with it, he struck a thousand men. So, he mixed the blood and gore of the donkey with the blood and gore of a thousand Philistines. Um, the Spirit of the Lord gave him the power to do that. Supernatural power um, displayed uh, as God came upon him. But mixed into the story, we see a reckless appetite of Samson. That's why we've, we, the title of the message is Mighty and Weak. Mighty and Weak. Or you might even say Mighty, comma, Weak. Or take out the comma, Mighty, Weak. Because Samson's life is, you know, he's not the kind of guy we really look up to in a lot of ways, because of his reckless appetite. Nonetheless, God uses even his reckless appetite. I mean, some, sometimes we worry that things are too bad, Christians are too weak and messed up for there to be any victories for God anymore. We're forgetting who wins the victories. We're thinking that somehow God needs me to be a superhero for there to be a victory, when the reality is that God is the superhero. God is the one that's going to make the victory possible. God used Samson's, even his reckless appetite, but God also, God also let the consequences humble Samson in the way he needed to be humbled. And we're actually going to see an attitude from Samson at the end that is, is one we don't see often in the story of his life. So, in Judges 14, 1 through 4, this, this uh, themes start showing up that really troubles us. Samson went down to Timnah, and that's a uh, village of the Philistines, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother. Now remember, Samson's consecrated to the Lord. Well, this woman's not consecrated to the Lord. She's pagan. He says, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? 
I mean, why, why do you want to marry somebody who doesn't even know the Lord? And, you know, those kinds of conversations have happened over the years. One of the best ways to, to really make your life miserable if you're a believer is to marry someone who's not. It makes for a very difficult uh, life because you're living for a, a different God. And Matt, Samson said to his father, like, he's just ignoring him, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. And so what God's going to do is he's going to take Samson's sinful appetite to lead him into the middle of the Philistines so that then he can do damage to the Philistines and weaken their power. And we find that after he had killed this lion... We get some insight into how he's appetite-driven and how he's not really worried about his Nazarite vows, about not coming in contact with anything unclean. After some days, he returned uh, to take her, uh, and he turned aside to see the carcass. That take her would be this uh, woman in Timnah that he wanted to be his wife. He turned aside to see the carcass of the lion that he killed, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out with his hands. And went on eating as he went. He came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. That would have been a violation of his Nazarite vows. Again in Judges 16, we read, Samson went to Gaza. There he saw a prostitute. Now remember now his, his first wife was given to somebody else, and then she is murdered. Okay? Now he's still, though, he hasn't learned his lesson. He's still looking for those that, that aren't living for the Lord and don't know the Lord. He went into her, and the Gazites were told, that's those that live in Gaza, were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, and the two posts pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulder and carried them to the top of a hill that's in front of Hebron. So God used it to actually destroy the city gate. In Judges 16, 4 through 6, we're told once again, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And of course, she's as famous as Samson. They've written plays and operas and all kinds of things about her. Um, she clearly uses Samson. She's more in it for the money than anything. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, see where his great strength lies, by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So she's going to be a wealthy lady if she can just find out the secret to Samson's strength. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. And of course, you remember, he lies to her multiple times. He teases with her. It's like a big game for him. Like he's used to winning. No matter what happens, he wins. No matter what choices he makes, he wins. And he pushes it a step too far. He actually tells her finally about his Nazarite vow, his hair never having been cut. In Judges 16, we read, 
She made him sleep on her knees. She called a man, had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. That's, that's tragic words and frightening words. Frightening words. And you, you actually see this played out quite a bit in the lives of those that God has used over time. They start to think that the reason they're successful is because of themselves. And God humbles them. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. I think that's ironic. His eyes were the things always getting him in trouble. And so God uses the Philistine to say, get rid of the eyes. And we're reminded what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. If your eye causes you to stumble into sin, rip it out. Better to go without an eye than to end up in hell. The Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. So God has used even this reckless appetite and God has humbled Samson. But yet, there's more. There's a final vindication. The greatest victory of his life will come at his death. We read these hopeful words in verse 22 of Judges 16. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. It's almost like there's this, there's this little theme coming in. There's this like, don't... Don't forget, you are consecrated to the Lord at the beginning. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of prison. And they entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. They entertained him. He entertained them by their mocking him and making fun of him. There he was with his eyes gouged out, weak as water. Now we're told that the house, verse 27, was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. On the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. And then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, the second prayer he gives to God, let me die with the Philistines, and he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. You know, only once before does judges record that Samson prayed to the Lord. It was when he was very thirsty after killing a thousand Philistines in Judges 15 and Samson prayed that he would give him something to drink. And God answered Samson's prayer 
by splitting open a hollow place and water came from it and it became a permanent spring that was there to the very day that the book of Judges was being recorded. Samson's life is colorful, but it's disappointing. A checkered tale of powerful deeds accomplished in the strength of the Lord and of sad indulgence bringing great sorrow. But God's grace on Israel prevailed nonetheless. Things would grow yet worse in Israel with horrendous atrocities, creating a burning thirst for a better time and a greater leader. The golden age, this is like the dark ages, but the golden age was soon to come. The final judge, Samuel, would anoint the great king David. He would rule, and to him, God would promise the greatest savior king ever, the offspring of David, the Messiah himself the hero of a God. He would bring the ultimate and will bring the ultimate golden age, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. One day, as servants of the Lord, we won't have this mixture of weakness and strength. One day, the sins will be totally gone. We'll stand blameless before the Lord and all things will be set right again. But Samson gives us kind of that picture of what God has been doing throughout human history. An impossible birth consecrated to God. Supernatural power began to save Israel from the Philistines. A reckless appetite, but God used it and and humbled him because of it. And then final vindication, the greatest victory was at his death. And as I looked at those four statements about Samson's life, somebody else a perfect hero came to mind. Jesus Christ, impossible birth. Jesus Christ, supernatural power who didn't just begin to save us, but accomplished salvation. Jesus Christ, no reckless appetite, an appetite only to serve God. He was used by God, but he was also humbled by God on the cross for our sake. But his final vindication was his greatest victory, was at the point that seemed like his greatest defeat on the cross. Of course, he broke the bars of death and rose again, intercedes for us, is coming back again, and will reign forever. So when heroes like Samson disappoint you, remember, they're just a shadow of the greatest hero of all, Jesus Christ. He became weak for our sake, but he is mighty to save. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this really amazing story, this colorful story. It it captures our imagination. It disappoints us as well as thrills us. But Lord, we thank you that it points us to Jesus Christ. We pray that he might receive the praise. Lord, help us not expect that, that somehow we're going to serve you perfectly. Help us serve in your strength and to your glory and realize that the real hero of our life is you, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.